Okay, take your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. As we seek to make more progress in the Sermon on the Plain, Plateau, Sermon on the Mount, we see them as likely identical, and yet Luke gives us the condensed version. And we've been walking through this and seeing the kingdom citizens and how they are characterized and and we've seen the comfort of kingdom citizens and the beatitudes and uh, in contrast to the woes. Uh, we've seen the charity or the love of kingdom citizens in verses 27 to 36. And then we looked at the character, we began to look at the character of kingdom citizens in verses 37 to 43, or sorry, 45. And no, 40, <laughs> 42, yes. Uh, this morning, we uh, plan to look at verses 43 to 45 and uh, the second part of the character of kingdom citizens before we wrap up the conclusion of the sermon, Lord willing, next week. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43 down to verse 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the word of the living God. In 1988, billionaire William Koch bought four bottles of wine for a total of $500,000. He bought it from a wine dealer named Hardy Rodenstock. Part of the reason for the cost, uh, high cost of these bottles of wine was who their previous owner had been. Uh, The claim was that they were from 1787 and belonged to Thomas Jefferson. They even had his initials, THJ, engraved on each of the bottles, which was characteristic of of others in the collection of Jefferson, who loved wine. (laughs) Uh, So it matched. As the story goes, though, they found uh, them bricked up in uh, a wine cellar, someone answer that, please. <laughs> in, in a wine cellar um, that was bricked up in Paris. And so the story is great. It's like they knock down this wall and they find these bottles of wine as it goes. And, and so this guy gets it and he sells it to Coke. Years later, in 2005, when Coke tried to exhibit a number of his possessions at the uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, these bottles were among those possessions and rare items, and they asked him where they came from. And so he had his people find out where they came from, and the farthest they could go back was the person who authenticated them when Coke bought them, and that was all. And so they had to go farther to make sure that they were legit. And so, uh, not being able to nail down a clear source, they contacted the Thomas Jefferson Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, They informed them that though Jefferson had kept records of 
all of the bottles of wine he had, or most of them, he, there was no record of these four bottles as being part of his collection. Yikes. <laughs> 500,000. <000. laughs> then hired an investigator who used the work of a retired FBI agent to look into the matter. They looked carefully at the corks to see uh, if they were fraudulent. Uh, they couldn't confirm it. Uh, whether it was genuine or not. They even tried carbon dating them, uh, which couldn't confirm it either. And here's where it gets interesting. They contacted someone who tested the wine bottles to see if they had any of the radioactive isotope cesium-137 in them, which I found out is like a legit way that, where they test to see how old a bottle of wine is. Uh, to see if there's any traces of cesium-137. Apparently, after the atomic age, when we started testing and using atomic weapons, it began to introduce cesium-137 into the atmosphere. And it's a byproduct of nuclear fission. So any water wine bottled after or around 1940, the 1940s will uh, have some trace elements of cesium-137. And so you can tell if it's before or after that. And so they tested the bottles for cesium-137, and wouldn't you know it, they didn't have any of it in it. So it actually went, predated 1940s, but was it still the bottles of Thomas Jefferson? Well, finally, after much investigation, they discovered under careful analysis that the initials engraved in the bottles was done by the use of an electric dental drill. And this tool had not been invented until around 150 years after Jefferson. And so the jig was up. The bottles were a fake. They were a fraud. What does this have to do with anything this morning? <laughs> well, you probably don't lose any sleep over uh, falsified wine bottles of uh, presidents of the past, but there is something much greater concern to us that is much closer to home and is the issue of false Christians, fake Christians, those who are mislabeled as Christians. They're passed off as the real thing, and yet they are not the real thing. They are fakes. The danger of mislabeled Christians. This is what Jesus is addressing in this text. And Jesus is really calling for examination in our passage, an examination of fruit, so as to determine the quality, the nature, and the genuineness of the person and their relationship to Christ. In other words, an examination of the conduct and the conversation of a person is one way to evaluate whether someone truly possesses Christ and does not merely profess Christ. The grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. And so the real, the intent of this passage is self-examination. Self-examination. Jesus is calling his disciples to think this way, not only for others, but probably primarily for themselves, to ensure that they truly have produced genuine fruit of saving faith. Do you have fruit in your life indicating that you are alive and growing? Or is there nothing but thorns and thistles? This is what Jesus wants us to consider in this passage. And really, there's, I guess, two breakpoints uh, of application for us here, that if there is no fruit, 
then there is no root of life, and therefore the response ought to be repentance and request for a new heart, for a new tree, for life, so that there can be the produce that comes with that new life. If there is fruit, even just a little bit of fruit, right? Just itty bitty. You know, you, you plant something, and you're like, oh, there's a little bit there. You know, do we, do we let it keep growing? Do we pick it off? What do we do? Uh, if there's a little fruit, then rejoice. Rejoice. That would be the response because God has saved me. God has, he's brought new life into my heart. I'm alive. I couldn't have done this myself. God has worked in my heart. And so those are kind of the two things we'll keep coming back to is do you need to repent and request a new heart or do you need to rejoice because God is at work in your life. This is what Jesus is after. This is in the category of the character of kingdom citizens. And let me remind you what we looked at before. The kingdom citizens are characterized by gracious interaction with others, by a guarded intake of teaching, by getting the log out of your eye, and then we might add to that in, this, in these, verse, these three verses, growing genuine fruit. Kingdom citizens are characterized by growing genuine fruit as really an evidence of their new life. This is a section where Jesus is calling his disciples to discernment, to not only discern others, but also to discern their own hearts, to discern their own fruit. Let me just say from the beginning here, when you think about assurance, and you think about assurance of salvation, it's always most important. The, the main primary means of assurance is the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. It is looking away from ourselves to him and recognizing that I am sinful, I haven't done enough, and I look to him. He is the hope of salvation. He's the anchor, right? As we sang about, he is the one who my hope is in, not in myself, right? That is the, the ground and foundation. Uh, but the Bible also does speak about some secondary means of assurance, and fruit is one of those. So it's not the, front, the primary basis, but it is a, like a secondary corroborating evidence of the change wrought by God in the human heart. I just want to say that up front because it's important that this is not the only way we evaluate whether a person knows Christ, but it is certainly a significant one in Scripture. So that is the focus of this text, is the fruit, the produce of the life as an evidence of the genuineness of a believer. So we want to look at three areas of examination to test the genuineness of the change in your heart. Three areas of examination to test the genuineness of the change in your heart. We want to look at the, uh, we want to examine the quality of the fruit, examine the nature of the fruit, and then examine the produce of the heart. Well, let's look first and examine the quality of the fruit in verses 43 and the beginning of verse 44. So look, look there at verse 43 again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. This word for, okay, at the beginning of verse 43, connects us back to what he's been saying. This is just him further developing. In the prior verses, he talks about the hypocrite in verse 42, and they produce bad fruit, of course. But a disciple uh, is one who is growing. They're obeying from the heart as a general pattern. Now, in Matthew's gospel, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he's really focused on false teachers. Um, Luke is, seems to be more general. Uh, I mean, it's still within the kind of the, 
Like if you shoot a shotgun, right, and you have like a, a spray, right, and that spray is kind of a range uh, where you can get hit. Uh, and so it's like Matthew is focusing over here on one legitimate implication of Jesus' teaching on false teachers. Luke is focused over here on a different one, but they're all in the trajectory of the scattershot of the intention of Jesus. Luke is just being more general uh, than false teachers. So it, of course, applies. Matthew's being more specific, but Luke is picking out another valid implication for just anybody and the fruit that they produce in their lives. So the, the illustration about trees is actually quite simple. If you have a good, good quality fruit, you have a good tree. Now, that's what he's saying. And this is the beauty of Jesus' illustrations. They're immediately apprehendable. I mean, you get them. It's just, it's just what he says <laughs> to apply them that gets hard. I think it was Mark Twain who said something like um, that it's not the things that he uh, doesn't understand the Bible that bother him. It's the things that he does understand that <laughs> bother him, right? And, and so Jesus is very clear here. If you have bad quality fruit, you have a bad tree. And the idea of bad here is bad fruit. It's, it's inedible. It's so bad that you, you can't even ingest this. One writer said this, when it comes to trees, the quality of the external fruit reveals the internal condition of the tree. In botany, there's always a corresponding consistency in these matters. And so his point is simple. True disciples bear good fruit because they have been changed on the inside. That's the implication. And so they're alive and they produce good fruit corresponding to that. Those then who have not been changed produce fruit that is inedible. And this is why Jesus says, for each tree is known by its own fruit, the beginning of verse 44. Show me the fruit, and I will tell you if the tree is alive or dead. And so what's produced visibly connects with what is true internally, what is true actually. And so we might apply this and see what Jesus is saying and say, show me a professing believer's fruit and I'll tell you if they're truly alive or if they are dead. That's, the, that's where he's driving towards. And I think we see this even more so in John 15. If you turn there, John 15, we'll read an extended portion of this uh, because it's very helpful in getting at what Jesus is saying. John 15, did I say 14? I don't know. 15, John 15, okay. Um, and let's look at these, this first section of the chapter. John 15, starting in verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Let's pause for a second. In Isaiah five and other places, Israel is described as a vine, and that they're, they're, they're not producing, right? And so this image is, is started in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the true Israelite who will ensure that Israel becomes what they are. Oh, God always wanted them to be, but he's just saying, he's identifying that self, him, himself that way as well. So I, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. That idea of in me is like the idea of there's some kind of association here. He's, he's not saying that they're in union with Christ, but the idea is that they're somehow associated with Christ. They've probably made a profession, but they don't bear any fruit. And so what happens? They're cut away and they're thrown away. They're taken away. He prunes it. Or he, or he takes it away, rather. And then every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
And so he sees fruit happening. Oh, so he starts to clip at it and prune it because so, he wants better fruit, richer fruit, riper fruit. Then verse two, or sorry, verse three. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide, or this is like the word for remain. So you could read either of those, remain or abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so here's where, this is a good application. Some people don't see fruit in their lives. And so they go, I need to work harder. I need to try to be better. And then I will, you know, I'll be genuine, right? And he's like, that's not how it works. It's like stapling fruit, going to the grocery store, buying fruit, stapling on the tree and being like, there we go. I've got a fruitful tree. Uh, No, you cannot produce fruit unless you're united to Christ. That's the issue. No fruit means you're not truly united to Christ. And so that's why he says you can't produce any fruit if you're not connected to the vine. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so now he's just explaining his illustration. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. These are unbelievers. They're, they're not abiding in Christ. They're not connected to Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, this actually tells us what it means to abide. This isn't something mystical where you're just like, close your eyes and you're like, Lord, help me to abide. You know, and you have no idea what that means. It, he means let my words abide in you. If, if the word of God remains in you, you're abiding in Christ and his will. He says, if that happens, if, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why? Because the words of God abide in you. His will becomes your, or his will and desires become your will and your desires. And he answers those prayers. Verse eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there, there's the issue. Bear fruit and therefore prove to be my disciples. He's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples and he's talking about this fruit thing. And here in John 15, he's saying, The bearing of fruit is evidence that you really are a disciple of mine. Verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you, command you. No longer do I call you servants or slaves, really, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So, John 15 says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We have to be connected to the vine. And let me just make a side application here. Like, so if you do bear fruit, 
I mean, rejoice. You're like, yeah, I'm connected to the vine. I, I want to abide more. I want the word of God more to be filling my thoughts and my life and directing me. And, and that's, that, that is abiding in Christ. And it's producing a change in my prayer life because I'm praying what God wants and I'm seeing answers to prayer. And this is just the abundant life. It's full of joy because the word of God fills my heart. And I pray that back to the Lord and Lord answers. And, and I'm just seeing things clearly because I'm perceiving the world through the word of God. And this is God's intent for joy and it glorifies God. It proves that I'm a disciple and all these things together. But just a side application. This is so good. What does it say? It says the father is the vine dresser and when he sees fruit, he, he clips you. <laughs> he prunes you. Now, do you think that feels good or do you think that hurts, right? Yeah, it hurts, right? But, but it puts it in a whole new light. Like when trials come and difficulty comes into your life, as a Christian, you can say, God is pruning me. He's clipping. He's, and why? Why is he doing that? so I'm more fruitful. And the idea is not just like, like more fruit on the branch, but it's the, that what fruit is on the branch is better. It's richer, right? You can have an alive fruit, but like you bite in and you're like, oh, it's not right. It's not right yet. You know, it's not. And then you get the right one. It's like, oh, it's so good. You know, let's go buy more of those, you know. And that's the idea. He's going to discipline, bring you through trial, and it sweetens you. And we know what this is like. We know that some of the sweetest believers are those who've gone through some of the most difficult trials. Because God has pruned them and pruned them and pruned them. And we've talked about John, Johnny Erickson Todd a number of times. Right? There's many examples of that. And there's just like a sweetness that's produced. And that's the Father's pruning work. And so we rejoice when God does that. And, it, and it's difficult in the moment. But that's why James says, rejoice when you go through trials. Why? Because God is creating in you sweeter fruit is the idea. And that's why Peter, in 1 Peter 1, when we study that, he, he talks about how, how good it is that we are, um, when we go through trials, because it reveals that we really do know God. Like when we're being persecuted, when we're suffering and we still cling to God and we don't deny him, we're like, forget this thing. I'm done with, with Jesus, God, you know, the Bible. Uh, this is too hard. When you, when you cling to him and say, I, I don't get this. I don't know what's happening, but I want you, God. I need you, God. You're like, wait a minute. Why would I say that? Why would I still cling to God despite this circumstance? Because I'm alive. Because God has changed my nature, and this is fruit. Praise God, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm going to heaven. Like, that's an evidence, and I didn't even realize it until now. Like, and what a, what a blessing. But if the quality is not there, then it, it leads you to say, Lord, give me a new heart. Help me to repent, because there's, there's no quality here. And so this is the first thing Jesus calls for. Examine the quality of the fruit. Examine the quality of it. Second, examine the nature of the fruit. Examine the nature of the fruit. In the middle of verse 44. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now here, it's slightly different, right? You might think it's the same, but slightly different, and it's related to the nature of the fruit. The nature of the fruit tells you the nature of the tree it comes from. And this is basic as well. But notice the choice of words that Jesus has. And I think, I, I skipped over this. I, I, and, and then later I was like, wait a minute, why, why does he say that? He says, figs and grapes. And the contrast is to thorn bushes and bramble bushes. But why these comparisons? Why not apples don't come from orange trees? Or peaches don't come from banana trees or whatever? Why say it like that? Why these? Right? I could have said anything. Because figs come from fig trees and grapes come from vines. 
And you're like, yeah, I know that, duh. But what is the image for peace and prosperity and rest in the Old Testament? Vine and fig tree. This is a fascinating study. I mean, it's a really rich study. We don't have time to do it. But let me just give you a sample of it. Related to the kingdom of God, this idea of vine and fig tree is really prominent. And of course, what happens after Noah, who's going to give a sort of rest? Yes, the flood is, um, the flood is judgment, but it's also a rest, a reset experience for the world. Uh, in fact, it's, it's couched in language of recreation. Remember the water, the globe is covered in water again, and then there's a separation of the land and the water, just like what? day two, you know, of creation. So it's like a new creation. And Noah's name means rest. And that's what God is ultimately going to give to the creation, a Sabbath rest. And we've talked about that. We talked about the Sabbath before. And so what does Noah do after he gets off the ark? One of the first things he does, he plants a vineyard. And we often think about that because it's, he gets drunk later. But, but what is he doing? He's planting a vineyard. This begins this idea of this idea of rest associated with a vineyard. And then it gets picked up later in scripture and it gets used of things related to God's kingdom. So for example, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, this is Solomon's kingdom and this is the best it got. And this is also confirmation that the nature of the kingdom God was talking about that he would bring was earthly and it was in Jerusalem. And Solomon is the example of, hey, this is what it could be. This is what it could be like. 1 Kings 4, 25, here's summarizing Solomon's kingdom. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. It's like the whole land. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. This is the image of peace, of rest, of, the, of a snapshot, a foretaste, a Costco sample or Sam's Club sample of the eschatological rest put in the terms of sitting under your vine and fig tree because it's prosperous. Oh yeah, by the way, what does the Messiah hook his donkey to in the future kingdom? A vine that is so thick because it's so productive that he's not afraid that the donkey's going to pull away from it. Right? You don't put like this tiny little stick, you know, you hook your horse to it or your donkey. No, it's so massively productive. And so once again, that language again, when the Messiah comes, these are the conditions. Then Micah 4.4, 4, talking about the Messiah's future kingdom, he says this, he picks up on what Solomon's kingdom was like and he's like, the Messiah's kingdom is going to be like that. Micah 4.4, 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. So that's, what's, that's what we're headed for. We're headed for this Edenic rest, this, this creational rest, this perfect peace on the earth, productivity of the earth in the Messiah's kingdom. Zechariah 3.10. Zechariah 3.10. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So you just see this in the kingdom. And, and this is what's going to happen. Now, in context, in Luke chapter 6, what is Jesus talking about? the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are you, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's saying, here are, here's the comfort of kingdom citizens. That's what we keep saying. The comfort of kingdom citizens, the charity of kingdom citizens, here's how they live. Now, right now, the king is not on the earth, reigning from Jerusalem. We're looking forward to that hope in the future, but 
He is the king. He is going to sit on David's throne. And we are his kingdom citizens positionally right now. And we are to live a certain way as kingdom citizens as we look forward to that future rest. And so in context, he's talking about the kingdom of God and who it belongs to. And so here, all three of these passages that we just looked at, well, four if you include the Noah thing, they're related to the kingdom of God on earth and what it will be like. So vine and fig tree are Old Testament symbols of peace being brought back to Eden and the end times rest God has promised on the earth. But where do the images of thorns come from? That's a little easier, right? Thorns come from Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis 3.18, the curse on the ground. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. They are, the thorns are, an image of the curse of sin. This is what happened in the creation. And so, what is the idea here? Like, Robert, that was great. History lesson, you know, thanks for that biblical theology. But what does that have to do with this? And why Jesus says this? Because this is intentional. He's not just random. The idea is that if you do not produce the fruit of kingdom citizens, then you are not a kingdom citizen, right? So if this is the nature of the future kingdom, vine and fig tree, then he's saying the nature of the individual who's a part of that will also be vine and fig tree-like. But if you're a part of the thorns and thistles curse, you're going to represent that as well. If you're, in other words, if you have the qualities of this world cursed, then that's all you're going to enjoy. It, but if you have the conditions and the, the characteristics of that future creation already evidence in your life, then that is where your destiny is. Now, does the Bible speak this way anywhere else? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, remember Jesus talking about the vine and the, and the branches in John 15, if anyone's in me, abides in me, remains in me, that's this idea. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Oh, that sounds like creation language. That sounds like new creation. Well, because it says new creation, right? That sounds like a new Eden. That sounds like a new uh, restoration, rest, Edenic rest, bringing back to Eden. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And wouldn't you know it, the future world that we're looking forward to in Revelation 21.1 is spoken of in those same terms. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This isn't talking about an individual person. This is talking about the, the earth, the creation, the, the universe. For the first heaven and the first earth had, same language, passed away. Same language for the believer. So there's this correspondence between people and the creation, or people and the planet, we could say. Uh, so that's the idea here. Now, why would that be significant? Well, because Adam, an individual, sinned, and the result came upon the creation. And so it makes sense that the Bible would locate these two together of the creation characteristics and the, the characteristics of the individual. And so this is what Jesus is doing. This is quite incredible, the, the connections that he's making. He's saying, do you have a fig and grape heart or do you have a thorny heart? Because if you have a thorny heart, which represents the curse in this world, that's your destiny. If you have a fig and grape heart, that indicates you're a, kingdom of, you're a citizen of the coming kingdom. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, give this warning. It says, for, the, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those 
for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. One other place, listen to Luke chapter 8. So this is only like, maybe turn the page, I guess. Luke chapter 8. Listen to this parable that Jesus tells and how it relates to our passage. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and it grew up. It withered away. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up, grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. In Matthew's account, he says 30, 60, 100-fold. Just incredible produce. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Same language, kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there's our thorn language, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So you have four different soils and the same seed. Seed is the word of God. The word of God goes out. The message goes out. The message of the kingdom, how to be rightly related to the king and be a part of his kingdom. And there's three soils that are not genuine believers and one soil that is. And they're known by actually bearing fruit in the end. And he uses this thorn language. He even, for the, for the rock, he even says, believes for a while and has joy. It's like, that's really hard to tell apart. Like, they're like, ah, I believe in Jesus and man, I'm so happy now. Uh, and yet they don't remain. And so he's saying, yeah, they weren't real. They, they didn't really know the Lord. No fruit, no faith is the point. And so th- these are, this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. Now, just to clarify, we, we gotta do this. You are not saved because of your fruit, Right? Not saved because of your fruit. You're saved because God made you a new tree and gave you life, right? That's why you produce fruit. You produce fruit because God made you alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't artificially staple fruit on a dead tree or, you know, the fake fruits, you know, uh, that sometimes get put out on a bowl. You know, you, I don't know if you ever tried to bite one of those. It looks so real. Uh, you don't put that out. No, you need to be given life so that you can produce real fruit. What is the produce of your life? If thorns, you need to repent and request a new heart. If figs and grapes, you should rejoice. 
and request to be more fruitful still. And just think, okay, if as I talk about the coming kingdom and what God is gonna do to this creation and what he's gonna do for all of us, and your heart goes, yeah, that's gonna be great. I can't wait for that. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, this is incredible. That's a good sign. That's a great sign that you long for that kingdom. You long for the return of Christ. That's an evidence. That's a fruit of true faith, that you want that. You want this world to be free of sin. You want to be free of sin. That's a good sign. That is fruit. Titus tells us, or Paul tells us in Titus 2.14, that Christians are those who are zealous for good works. We're zealous. We're we're on fire to obey God. We want to follow him. And this is why it's so different, right? It's not just like mediocre, you know. It, Matthew says 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This is like massive. Massive produce. Why would it be so massive? Because it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a, a supernatural change in our lives. And so it would bring about supernatural results in our lives. Before we move to our last point, listen to Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one, verse five. Peter says this: For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing. They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For for whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what is the produce of your life? Finally, we want to examine the produce of the heart. The produce of the heart. Look at verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is where Jesus gets explicit. He connects the dots. He's talking about human hearts. If you didn't already get that, (laughs) he just says it outright. And you really have two people, a good person and an evil person. If someone's a good person, they are not that by nature. They've been regenerated. They've been given a new heart. That's why they're good. If they're an evil person, they have not been converted yet. And then you have two treasure boxes. Two treasure boxes. One's full of good and one is full of evil. I think, I think we get our word thesaurus from this word, uh, treasure box. Right? Thesaurus is like a treasure trove of synonyms. This is how I alliterate uh, th- with a thesaurus. Um, I'd be hopeless without it. Uh, this treasure box represents your heart. That's a great picture of what the heart is, a treasure box. Treasure speaks of what? What does treasure speak of? It speaks of value, worth. Your heart reveals what you treasure most in life, where your value is placed, what you value most. 
Remember how Mary treasured all these things up in her heart? She considered what was happening with Jesus, the revelation she was receiving. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart. It's so precious to me. Love your word, God. When I understand it, it's like, oh, it's so good. Just want more. Does your heart value Christ? Or does it value everything else but Christ? What does the treasure of your heart reveal? How do you examine the produce of your heart? Well, through conduct and through conversation. Look at yourself and listen to yourself. Conduct and conversation reveal your condition. I mean, this is like James 2 and 3, right? James 2, uh, faith without works is dead, behavior, conduct. And then chapter 3, the tongue is a fire. And he talks about the tongue and our speech. So conduct, conversation, this is nothing new. Really, your mouth is a tattletale on your heart. It's a tattletale on your heart. For, he says, the end of verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You've got to have this verse memorized. I mean, this, is, this does a lot of work for you, right? Parenting, marriage, you know, interpersonal relationships. I mean, everything. It's so helpful. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The heart is mission control center for all that you are and do. Biblically, the heart thinks, the heart plans, the heart remembers, the heart desires, the heart has inclinations, the heart values things, the heart chooses things. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it, from your heart, flow the issues of life, or the springs of life. Everything comes out from the heart. The issue here he's getting at is, has your heart been transformed? Is it continuing to be transformed? Well, how do you talk? Or what do you talk about and what do you not talk about? Like, do you ever talk about someone who, talk to someone who says they're a Christian and then you try and talk about just anything, anything spiritual, like anything about God, about the Bible related to that, what you're learning, and they're always like wanting to change the conversation. It's just not their realm, right? Uh, and, and then we get that with other things where, you know, if someone talks to you, to you about something that they're really into and you're just like, you're not into that. And so you're, you can only go so far. You're like, ah, uh, yeah. And then they just kind of pick up on the cue and they're like, all right, they, they stop. They go to someone else, you know. And, and uh, you kind of want to change the subject maybe. But if that happens when you're talking about God and the Bible and Christ, and yet the person's like, yeah, I'm a Christian and everything. Uh, no, it's one thing to you know, if someone's like, just like, they're nervous or intimidated, but like, it's just like, if they're never wanting to talk about these things, you're like, wait a minute, that's odd. Like, isn't this like the most important, isn't this the treasure of your heart? And so not only what you talk about, but what you don't talk about. Man, they never talk about God. They never talk about Christ. I wonder what that means. Here's what it means. They're not a Christian. (laughs) That's what it means. That's what Jesus is saying. What is the treasure box of your heart? say about you. If you talk to someone enough, you will learn. J.C. Ryle says, a man's conversation is one indication of his state of heart. And this is just so practical. I mean, throughout the Christian life, it's not just like who's a believer or not. It, it, it just is helpful. I mean, we all sin as Christians, and, and it's so helpful to think about what we say so that we can grow. Here, Paul Tripp says this. He's got a great book called War of Words. If you want to just be slayed, you know, with conviction, 
Just read this book, you know, or listen to it on Audible. War of Words by Paul David Tripp. Here's what he says. It is very tempting to blame others or to blame the situation around us. I'm just going to pause and say conviction warning, you know, you know, okay. But word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. Ouch. Imagine you're walking across a room with a glass full to the top of some liquid, just right on the surface, right? My kids do this all the time. And they try to walk, you know, not all the time, but sometimes, you know, uh, a little too full. And, uh, and so you're walking and then someone comes in, they bump you, right? And it's like, you know, and the liquid comes out, right? It spills out. And you learn what was in the cup, right? Because what spills on the ground? Hopefully it's water. So it's, you know, it's sticky or whatever. Uh, and, and that's what you learn. Now, life is like that circumstances are like that. You got this heart and it's full of something, right? It's not empty. It's full of something. It's full of your treasure. And so you're walking along and some adverse circumstance bumps you, right? Some trial, some, someone doing something you don't like bumps you. And what happens? You know, you spill, right? You spill out in words or behavior and your words reveal the contents of your heart. It reveals what's the liquid in there, right? And of course, to our shame as Christians, even we at times go, oh, Lord. But sometimes here's what we say. We say, I didn't mean to say that, right? I didn't mean to say that. But what you're really saying, what, what, what's really true and what we're really saying is, I didn't mean for you to hear that. <laughs> That's what we mean. And so here, I'm just practically, if, if you do say something that you, you know, was sinful, was unkind, was, you know, whatever, you say, instead of saying, I didn't mean to say that, you say, please forgive me for saying that. That was unkind. And you just take responsibility for it. The Lord is just, in a hard way, revealing what's in my heart. And I need to do some business with the Lord. And, and this, is, this is like a, it's like going to the doctor. And I'm learning here what's in my heart. Because I wouldn't have said that if it weren't in my heart. Calvin called the tongue the portrait of the mind. The tongue was the portrait of the mind. It's revealing what's on the inside. So what is said and what is not said reveals your heart. Or imagine there's an invisible recording device around your neck. It records everything you say. What would that say about you? What would that reveal? And don't just think like, oh, man, I'm so terrible, you know. Because, like, maybe it also records, like, what you say to the Lord and your heart's desires. Lord, I want to be faithful to you. I want to honor you. I keep sinning. That's a good indication of a heart change by God. You cry out to the Lord. So Jesus is cutting both ways here, both with conviction and also with comfort that conviction, if there's no fruit at all, and comfort for those that have fruit. And with, without a doubt, this, this almost always happens. There are some who hear this message, a message like this, and their hearts are so tender, so sensitive, and they hear it and they're like, I don't have any fruit at all. I'm not a Christian. And it's like, this isn't the message directed. That's not the message for you. Like, you need to hear like, be comforted, dear Christian. God is at work in your life. And there's others who are so dull and they, they hear the message and they're like, yeah, I guess I'm good. And there's no fruit. And they're, you're like, what? <laughs> How did you not hear that, right? And so just keep that in mind, okay? Before you condemn yourself prematurely, just let me have a pastor's heart here and say, there may be more fruit than you realize. And this is why, this examination is not something you do individually. It's something that happens in the context of the church where other people can come alongside and say, 
Dear, dear Christian, you are very myopic here. You're looking at this one area. Look at, look at God's work in your life. Look over 10 years. Don't look over one week of your life. You can't, this is why some people want to examine their lives every single day uh, for, am I a Christian, am I a Christian? You know, it's like, hey, this is not like an everyday thing. This is something where you go, all right, what, is, what does my life say? Okay, praise God. And you keep going. Point of this is self-examination. He is calling us to do some fruit inspection on ourselves to look for the kind of, uh, the right kind of fruit. Ryle says this, let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart and that although men live wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? Then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. And so what are some things we, we should look for? I'm gonna actually just reference you to this. Uh, I think it's really helpful. In the very back of the MacArthur Study Bible, there is a very helpful little one-page dealio that it says, it's like evidence of genuine salvation. What is it called here? A character of genuine saving faith. And he gives a number of evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. And then a list of the fruits or proofs of authentic, true Christianity. And so, I'm just going to give them to you. The evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith are visible morality, intellectual knowledge, religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin, assurance, time of decision, right? So those are like good things, right? We're not saying they're bad, but they're just, they don't prove or disprove without a shadow of a doubt one's faith. But then here's the fruits or proofs of authentic Christianity. Love for God, repentance from sin, genuine humility, devotion to God's glory, continual prayer, selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth, obedient living, hunger for God's word, transformation of life. And there's this whole statement, if list one is true of a person and list two is false, there is cause to question the validity of one's profession of faith. Yet if list two is true, then the top list will be also to some degree. It's a really good list. I worked through it years ago, just like, Lord, reveal the truth of my heart. And it's good. There's a lot of verses with it, so I just I direct you to that. What do you do if you have a bad heart and bad fruit? Well, you need a new heart. You need regeneration. So you repent. You request God to give you a new heart, and you do it with persistence. Reference our Sunday school lesson this morning. <laughs> Cling to God until he blesses you, like Jacob. But if you see fruit, even a little bit, rejoice and pray for more. John 15, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of new life that you produce in hearts. You grant regeneration and you begin to cause there to be fruit to give evidence of that, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, we know we all wanna bear more fruit than we have, better fruit than we have, but Lord, as we see the little evidences, even others encourage us in that way, we just want to rejoice and say, God, it could never have been from me. It's all of you, all of grace. And Lord, if there are those who are shaken, I pray first of all that if they're shaken for the wrong reasons, that you would encourage them and comfort them. But Lord, if it is truly that they 
they're shaken for the right reasons, you would cause them to call out to you and find a new heart by your grace, turning from their own way, turning from their own efforts, and relying upon Christ alone. That they may know the joy of being one who abides in Christ. We thank you, Lord, and we pray your blessing on our time now as we prepare to celebrate Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.